0: This is Cabernet and True Crime, the place where good wine and true crime come together. My name is Jana, and I'm your hostess with The Mostess, and this is all stupid. (laughs) So I have my microphone, I have the adapter, I have everything plugged into my phone, and for some reason, there is no difference between when I use the microphone and when I don't use the microphone, I don't think it's working, so... it's just one of those days so far right yeah it's been one of those weeks so next week (laughs) next week will be the week we get it done um also for the time being I'm getting rid of the intro um I was going through like past episodes and I just like don't love it very much uh it's uh, well at least me I'm just waiting to like get to the point and it's just like an extra 15 seconds that I'm sure most people probably skip anyways because I would so we're just going to forget about it for now. You know, we don't need the fancy hoopla, the rigmarole. It's it's good. We don't need it. Um, and also, I can't decide because I kind of want to change it entirely. So if there is going to be one, it's not going to be the old one. And I just I'm getting rid of it for now. So thank you. The other funny thing is like I kind of went through not a rabbit hole because I say that word too much, but I kind of went down memory lane listening to bits and pieces of old podcasts. And it's kind of sad and kind of happy at the same time uh like there's some times where you can hear sweet penny girl in the background or like in one episode i'm talking about like we hadn't been on lockdown yet and so i'm talking about like covid and how we weren't sure how it was gonna go and if we were gonna get locked down and it's just so silly like to be sitting here now in october of 2023 and knowing like that and everything that was going on right it's just kind of crazy um just interesting. It's like a little time capsule for myself, and I, I really love that for me. Um, speaking of time capsules, and that's a very odd transition, but you can follow me on Instagram. I post something every single day, um, and I'm getting the YouTube ready to rock and roll in the new year, and I'm working on some other projects, and so that's all very exciting. And if you look me up on anything, I am Cabernet and True Crime pretty much everywhere, and uh, you can find me there. It's me. Just look up Cabernet and True Crime, and you'll find me uh tonight Chris and I are going to a horror movie trivia night and that's going to be a lot of fun um also I, I'm saying I got a microphone but I didn't I had a note to put in there like housekeeping you got a microphone no I didn't um so yeah also somebody was using an air compressor outside my house earlier and that is what it is and apparently my husband's playing video games at a loud volume downstairs which I didn't we didn't agree to before we started doing this. Um, And I was going to say, I can't control anything that goes on outside my house, but apparently I can't control anything that goes on inside my house either. On to some real uh, housekeeping. Um, I would like to plug another podcast. I know they were trying to send me over um, like their clip of something. And I don't know if maybe I typed something wrong in my Gmail or what, but I I didn't get it. (laughs) I checked just before I started and I didn't get it. So um, we're going to talk about Twisted and Uncorked. They're another true crime podcast. Um, Like I said, they were going to send me over an audio to plug in, but that didn't work. So I will be just giving you my uh, my spiel. Um, So Twisted and Uncorked is a podcast hosted by Alicia and Sierra, and they talk about spooky shit. And if you're here, you probably like spooky shit and true crime and conspiracy theories and all that. So you'd probably like their podcast as well. So you should definitely check them out. I will link their Instagram in the episode title for today, which is probably how you get here. Um, you know, take my word for it. <laughs> I think they're they're really nice people and they've got a good podcast, so I mean, why not cross promote them here? Because, you know, if you're here, you're part of the true crime community. We're a community, and uh, we kind of gotta look out for each other and help each other out when we can. So, there you go. Twisted and uncorked is their podcast wow episode 64 every time I make another episode I'm just like so I'm so proud of myself you know when I get to sit here when I've done the research and I've done what I needed to do and the stars have aligned and like every week when I sit down here I'm so excited because I get to talk to you guys about some true crime that I I researched and like I did it and now I'm here so 64, I've done this, well, over 64 times, but 64 times we've done this. And, like, that's just cool to me. I know it'll be cool when we hit 100, and I know, like, 64 is obviously my milestone. And I know every episode, I'm like, wow, 63, 64. But every time I do this, it's like um, it's like a little achievement for me, you know? And so I really like to just envy, not envy, but savor. Just savor that moment for a second. So let's just savor 64, and now we're going to move on. So small spoiler alert. The next several episodes are going to be taking place or have something to do with Ohio. Um, There's really no particular reason for this. It just happened to be coincidental. Um, If you've been here for a minute, you know that it's almost November, and you know that November is National Novel Writing Month, and I compete with varying degrees of success every single year. And it's just that time of year again, so I try to get all my content in order to make it go as smoothly as possible. And... um, So I can really just focus. I mean, I don't pre-record podcasts or anything. I just try to get my research and like my Instagram posts kind of together before um, November hits so that I'm focusing more on writing my novel. Um, My last novel that I wrote, I submitted to some publishing companies, and I got a lot of good feedback, and I actually could have taken the step to get published, but I didn't feel like I was ready, and I didn't feel like the book was ready, and honestly, I don't really love that story anymore. So I'm competing again this year with a new novel, and we'll see how that goes. So I'll still be recording every week hopefully. Um, sometimes sometimes I need to take a little break and take a week off, and I, I hate that I don't like schedule that, but it's kind of just like that, that day or like the night before, I'm like, ah, shit, I, like, I don't think I can do this. So um, we'll hope that doesn't happen. Um, and NaNoWriMo 2023, new story coming at you. I'm very excited. If you don't know what NaNoWriMo is, I think, um, and you are a writer or you like to write it all, I highly recommend it. It's a really good resource to try and Get a book done if you want to, and you've got pretty much everybody's competing too, and everybody's got the same goal, and it's just really cool because there's a lot of like team effort almost because you know everybody in the group is doing it with you. There's a lot of like Facebook groups and stuff of people like trying to hit their word goal, and people do like writing parties together, and it's it's like a lot of fun. So if you're trying to write a book or you you want to be a writer in some way, ten out of ten recommend NaNoWriMo for for doing it. To you know, it's hard to set aside time throughout the year. But, like, knowing that in November I'm going to write 50,000 words or more, it just kind of, like, you save it all. You save all your energy. Um, yeah. Yeah, that was a tangent. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know where I went for that. But, like, all all these episodes are going to be in Ohio. And, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Ohio, people forget about Ohio um, quite often, I think. And it's, it's okay. It's just this no offense we're just a very forgettable um midwest (laughs) midwest country state okay are you ready i'm ready all right eli stutzman jr and now mind you i don't like to cover cases that have already been covered like on like huge true crime episodes or anything because i i prefer to do the smaller ones and i didn't realize until i was mostly done with this episode that apparently there is a something on id channel coming out about this so just know i was here first or that i did this without even realizing that i was doing it okay so eli stutzman jr was born on september 28th 1950 he was born in apple creek ohio and that's like an hour south of cleveland near orville and wooster and the funny thing is is that i'm pretty sure we basically got nero from like that area so fun uh, it wasn't from the Amish or, like, anything. Not a puppy farm. It was just a couple of <laughs> other puppies. Um, okay, sorry. But much like most of rural Ohio and parts of Pennsylvania, Apple Creek is home to a very large Amish community. Wayne County, where Apple Creek is, and also that's where Eli Stutzman were, was born, has a high number of a specific type of Amish, which are the Swartz and Truber. Amish and apparently this area is like super diverse offering a variety of Amish culture but Swartz and Schubert is usually the the group that gets the most attention so as you probably know I am from Ohio <laughs> born and raised I've never lived in any other state I have never really wanted to live in any other state I go to other states and I'm like Ugh, it's, just, it's not Ohio I don't know that's just personal personal preference I guess um so the area where I live and where I grew up because I I lived in Cleveland for like fucking 18 years. No, not 18 years, like 10 to 12 years. The area where I live isn't like super rural, but it's also not a huge bustling metropolis by any means. And if I go to Walmart, there's a really high possibility that I will see someone that is Amish or Mennonite. Um, or like on driving on country roads, there's a high probability you're going to see a horse and buggy. It's not a crazy thing around here. I feel like everyone more or less understands the basic ideas and beliefs of the Amish because um, I think if you're going to live in this area of Ohio, they're just around and um, they're not uncommon to see. So you know who you'll never see in a Walmart ever? Swartz and Truber Amish. They are, on every level, the most strict form of Amish, rivaled only by the Nebraska old schoolers. Swartz and Trooper Amish do not allow any type of tractor, rototiller, power lawnmower, propane gas, bulk milk tank, mechanical milker, mechanical refrigerator, pickup balers, inside flush toilet, running water for any reason, chainsaws, pressurized lamps, and only allow, some allow, pneumatic tools." The only thing on the list, so if you Google Schwarz and Trubber Amish and you go on the Wikipedia page, the only thing on the list that the some, that they sometimes allow is a motorized washing machine. And I don't think that means like the LG top loader I have in my laundry room, I think that is a very different type of motorized washing machine. So I mean, just they're very strict. And here is just another snippet just to um, like paint a little picture. And this is also from Wikipedia. Their style of dress tends to be heavier and plainer, especially in the case of women. Only the Nebraska Amish uh, dress in a more conservative style. Swartz and Truber Amish services tend to be longer, even up to four hours. Like some of the old order groups, they avoid the use of electricity and indoor plumbing. Many other common devices and technologies are also disallowed for being too worldly, including Velcro and bicycles. Swartz and Trouper farms and yards are often unkempt. The and Troopers discourage interest and in outward appearance, as such an interest could promote vanity and pride. Their farms can be identified by dirt drives and surrounding roads, while most roads of the old order contain either gravel or paving to keep out the mud. The roofs of the houses and outbuildings are often made from tin, and the clothing differs from that of the older old order Amish in subtle ways. All colors are dark and somber rather than the bright blues and mauves. More common is navy, dark burgundy, and even gray. The dresses of the women, rather than reaching mid-calf, usually reach to the top of the shoes. The brims of the hats of the Swartzentruber Trooper men are four inches wide, wider than the brims of the more liberal a- a- affiliations. There's also a note that while most Amish buggies have to have the orange reflective triangle, like if you've ever seen a buggy before the back of them, have like that, the standard orange rectangular triangle, um, orange rectangular triangle, no, um, Legally for the roads, like you have to have them. The Swartz and Trooper apparently went to court and fought that and they won. So they, they only really have to use reflective tape because the triangles have been deemed too new world. I was reading a post in on Amish America. It's a fun little blog about the Swartz and Trooper Amish and, you know, like Eli. Um, cause he's the reason over here. Um, and here's a quote. So the group has gotten national attention in some notorious cases of abuse. Some anti-Amish activists focus on their disdain solely um, on the and faction. Do elements of the and lifestyle really promote asocial behavior? Or does the fact that they are so oddly reclusive and reluctant to change, combined with a few high-profile cases, make them particularly easy to paint as deviant? And to that note, there are certainly some instances of abuse within this community But that could be said for any community, really. And so, I mean, I tend to make statements. I tend to take statements like that with a grain of salt. And so with all that being said, there's really not much known about Eli's upbringing. But you could probably assume what it was like. Not only was it the 50s, but he was part of the most strict Amish community. Um, And from what I've read, though, he was quiet and reserved and notably withdrawn. In 1975, he gets married to a woman named Ida Gindridge, Um, she's 25 years old and that's a little late by Amish standards. Um, Ida was born on the 4th of July in 1951. So she's 24 at the time of their wedding. I looked this up just for funsies because I was curious if like Ida was originally Amish or not because her, everything about her really isn't isn't like written about. Like I really had a hard time finding a whole lot about Ida. But so, um, yeah, I, and I wasn't really sure how Swartz and Truber Amish marriages work, to be completely honest with you. But I would assume that, yes, based off of what I'm about to tell you, she must have already been part of the community and probably within the Swartz and Truber Amish community, I would guess. Um, because most Amish factions allow their teenagers to participate in a Rumspringa which is a period of time from the ages of like 16 to 21 where the reins are just loosened a little bit. Rumspringa means to jump around, to run around, and it's usually a time where Amish teens find their spouses. The Rumspringa ends when the teenager either gets baptized into the Amish, like into being Amish for good, or leaves the community for good. So like that's really, your Rumspringa ends basically when you find a spouse and either you you pledge your life to be to continue being Amish or you basically get exiled from the community. Um, I think I read somewhere, and don't quote me on this, but I think I read somewhere that like 99% of the people who do rumspringas come back simply for that fear that they don't want to be excommunicated from their whole families. So it's nice they get a little freedom, I guess, to kind of taste the world around them. But uh, yeah, I mean, most of them come back. And I mean, maybe some of them don't come back from that fear, but they like want to come back no shame in that game. So the rumspringa ends, like I said, when they want to go one way or the other. And typically, Swartz and Trooper Amish don't let their teens participate in a rumspringa at all. They don't get one. Um, Some communities might be a little less strict on that, but for the most part, it is a no-go. No rumspringa. You just get to pick a spouse. And um, so I read this, though. Most of them, so Swartz and Trooper Amish, most of them do allow their teenagers to court one another to try to find a marriage partner which includes hugging in bed while being fully clothed and rocking in a chair together some really scandalous stuff so Eli and Ida get married in 1975 and they welcome their first son Daniel into the world on September 7th 1976 Uh, Ida quickly gets pregnant again and in July of 1977 she is eight months pregnant On the morning of July 12th, a large barn fire takes place at the Stutzman property, allegedly attributed to lightning. Eli finds Ida, overcome by smoke and fumes in the milk house, and tries to revive her. Unfortunately, he is too late, and she is deceased on arrival at the local hospital. She's only 26 years old. There's a good amount of mystery surrounding Ida's death, and before the fire, Eli had reportedly changed the couple's bank account into just his name, And I wasn't sure if that was a euphemism or, like, if they actually had a bank account. I did a little bit of Googling, and it seems pretty mixed. Um, Like, the Amish's opinion on banks, some prefer to use them, some absolutely do not. So I don't know how their family felt about it. Um, Also, Eli also couldn't come up with a good reason why Ida would have been in the barn to begin with. Every time, like, they asked about it, anytime he was questioned about it, which I mean, wasn't a lot to be fair, but his story changed every time. So, a coroner investigated her death, but instead of doing a thorough autopsy and investigation, he believed everything that Eli had said. And the autopsy's cause of death was heart stopped, even though she had been killed in the fire. Um, many of those within the Amish community were suspicious of Eli and the death of his wife, but unfortunately for Ida, the Amish are private people and don't believe in law enforcement. So their concerns and suspicions were um, never voiced, and therefore Ida's death was deemed a tragic accident. So after the death of Ida, Eli fell into a depression, according to some sources. He shaved his beard, which goes against strict Amish tradition, and began using electricity at his residence. Eli, around this time and well before it, um, probably even when he was with Ida, is sleeping with men. And definitely after her death, he was putting ads in newspapers to find male company. It's suspected that his community knew, but they were trying to convince him that his, quote, mental problems, their words, not mine, would go away if he maintained his faith. Uh, There is no divorce in the Amish tradition. It doesn't exist. It's not a thing. It's not an option. You marry somebody, and that is a person you spend the rest of your life with. You do not get to divorce that person. And it's heavily suspected that Eli needed to get Ida out of the picture so that he could go and live the life that he felt he needed to live and be who he really thought he needed to be. Um, and in 1982, Eli sells his farm and moves to Ignacio, Colorado. He told a friend that he was leaving because of the pressure from the Amish to return to his faith, and at this point, he is openly gay, by the way, um, just to get that out there. He is he is openly gay. Um, I think his whole family knows about it. I think everybody knows about it, and it's not even a secret for him anymore, and there's no problem with being gay at all, but there is a problem with murdering your wife to be gay. Um, <laughs> I mean, that that's not cool. So, yeah, and I mean, at the end of the day, you know, he might not have caused her death. It was hella suspicious, but maybe it was a tragic accident. I don't think it was, especially based on the rest of the story. But it could be. So, yeah, that's that's kind of where that that stands. But so, like I said, he sells the farm in nineteen eighty two, packs up his son Danny, and moves to Ignacio, Colorado. Upon arrival, he tells his neighbors he intends on getting into cattle ranching, and I don't believe that ever actually happened because, and. I just want to state that I spent more time than I'm really comfortable with admitting to myself trying to figure out this timeline because it gets really confusing here and actually, like, (laughs) I was sitting on the couch yesterday like, I'm not even going to record tomorrow. I can't even record tomorrow because I couldn't figure this out, but then I figured it out. So, at least I think I figured it out. Figured it out enough to, like, tell you guys today. So, somehow, by 1985, Eli and his son have meandered down to Austin, Texas. Put the cattle ranching in the trash. They're like, we're moving down to Austin. He meets 23 year old Glenn Pritchett, who was originally from Utah. Glenn had served in the US Coast Guard and was married and divorced with two children when the two met. Uh, Glenn moved in as Eli's roommate. And I'm not sure if there's any um, uh, sexual implications there or not, but you would assume so. And at this point, Eli owns a construction company, or like I've read a renovation company, not entirely sure. And Glenn actually works there. On May 12th, 1985, Glenn Pritchett's body was found in a ditch in a rural part of Travis County, Texas. He was shot and fatally wounded. And by the time the body is found, Eli and his son have disappeared. Weirdly enough... Somewhere right after this, Eli dropped his nine-year-old son, Danny, off at a foster home in Wyoming shortly after leaving Austin, Texas. He left Danny there for six months. (laughs) For six months. He just dropped his son off at a foster home, was like, catch you later, and then just left. When Eli comes back to get Danny, he said they were headed back to Ohio. He told the foster family, oh, yeah, cool, I'm taking him back to Ohio to visit my family for the holidays. But when Eli... Like arrived there, he didn't have Danny with him, and that's suspicious. You know, that's kind of spooky. But so Eli arrived without Danny, and it's possible that he told his family that Danny was still in foster care or off somewhere else because at the time, nobody asked any questions. Nobody was concerned. It didn't seem about like Danny and where he was, and so Eli must have explained this away to the point where people were like, "Yeah, okay. Like, guess Danny is just somewhere else." On December twenty fourth, nineteen eighty five the body of a child was found frozen in a ditch near Chester, Nebraska. The boy had been found by a passerby along U.S. Highway 81. He was only wearing blue pajamas. No cause of death was obviously apparent. And when after time, the boy's identity remained unknown, the people of the town of Chester and nearby Hebron, um, raised the money needed to have a proper funeral for him. It was held on Easter in 1986 and almost 300 people attended the service. For the record, the population of Chester, Nebraska, in 1990 was 351. So that's like the whole town. Because they didn't know the boy's name, they put Matthew on the headstone with room for his real name to be, like, hopefully added later when they knew who he was. Because of the town's charity and good spirit, the story was in an article for Reader's Digest in in December, sorry, of 1987. The boy had been simply called Little Boy Blue because of his blue pajamas, but there were drawings of what he looked like as well as a physical description. Crazily enough, a couple recognized the boy based off the description. They were foster parents in Wyoming. They knew he was Danny Stutzman. Eli Stutzman was promptly arrested. He was living in Texas at the time. Police took him in under the charge of felony child abuse, and he was extradited for a trial in Nebraska But the texas police also wanted to question him about another mysterious crime the one that involved glenn pritchett there was a ton of evidence obviously against eli in the case of his son there were several letters written to family about danny long after he was deceased and there was a letter written by eli that is pretending to be danny dated four months after danny was found one question eli said that danny had died in the drive from wyoming to ohio He said that Danny had contracted some type of respiratory condition and the autopsy that was done on Danny had no conclusions, but there were also no signs of foul play. When questioned, Eli said that on the drive back to Ohio, he had tried to wake his son and give him the medication for his infection, but the boy was lifeless. Eli said that before putting Danny's body in a ditch and covering it with snow... He sat with his son and prayed for several hours. He said that there was a reason he didn't report the death and it was because he feared his family would blame him for not taking proper care of Danny. He said I decided to leave him and let God take care of him. The court didn't couldn't prove he had done anything malicious to his son outright. Nothing like a murder charge anyways. So instead, Eli Stutzman pleaded guilty on January 11th, 1988 to the misdemeanor charges of unlawful disposal of a dead human body and concealing the death. He was sentenced to 18 months in jail. After serving his time, he was transported back to Austin, Texas to go to trial for the death of Glenn Pritchett. Pritchett, as I mentioned earlier, had been found fatally shot in the head and left in a ditch. Eli said that before Glenn's body was found, he hadn't seen the man for over two months. Eli said that he had thought Glenn had gone to Montana to visit his family, and right around this time is when Eli moved out too. Gary Cutler, the homicide detective at the time, said that Eli had been a person of interest the whole time, but they hadn't had enough evidence against him to try to go for a conviction. But, hearing about the goings-on in Nebraska, the case was reopened, and thus, Eli Stutzman was brought in for trial. On July 31st, 1989, Eli Stutzman was found guilty of murder and sentenced to 40 years in prison this conviction in some ways brought closure to those who felt wrong that Eli didn't get more time for the death of his son while in jail, Eli's family kept in close contact. They visited him down in Texas, which I'm just like, how did, how did they get there? Um, cause I would assume, so in Ohio, at least like the, the Amish people that I see, they usually get somebody to drive them to said Walmart or they get, you know, they get somebody to do that for them since they can't physically operate a car. They can ride in a car though. I feel like the struts and... Wow. I just... uh, Wow. Hang on. I don't know what my brain just did. Swartz and (laughs) Trooper. Swartz and Trooper Amish. I don't feel like they would let you ride in a car, but maybe if your son's in jail for murder, they probably would let you. Um, So I guess that's just my own. I think they still hoped that he wasn't the monster that everybody's saying he was, or, like, maybe, I don't know, they had hope and optimism for it. I have no idea. Um, but Eli was released from prison in March of 2002, which serving way less than the 40 years that he was um, given, but he served 13 before being paroled, and he decided to stay in Texas and made Fort Worth his new home. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like he had been reformed in jail. He made and sold leather goods, like purses and Bible covers. Um, he had learned that skill while he was in prison. And apparently he made a lot of friends um, who all said he lived a very relaxing life. But according to those friends, they said he heavily abused crack cocaine and took no effort to hide that fact. So he made all these new friends who they all thought he had gone to prison for drug use, not for murder. He lied about where his son was, that he, um, sometimes he said he didn't have one. He lied about his wife. um, I'm sometimes saying he never had one. He lied about being Amish about it all no one in his life now knows anything about the real eli stutzman eli at some point had violated violated his parole i'm not sure for what and after being paroled in 2002 he was sent back to prison for some time but he was re-paroled in 2005 he had told his friend that he returned to amish country to visit his son and family on january 31st 2007 a friend found the lifeless body of eli stutzman in his own apartment he had a comforter pulled up to his neck, but his hands looked like they had been dunked in iodine, according to the friend. Eli Stutzman had taken a sharp object to his wrists and ended his life. An autopsy revealed that Eli was suffering from AIDS and also had cocaine in his system at the time of his death. Eli's dog was found alive, so after prison, he um, got a dog. I knew the name of the dog. I think it was like Sport or Skip. I'm not sure. Um, but the dog was found alive and fine in the apartment with him, and it was released to animal control. Some suspected that Eli's death was suspicious, and other assumes like others assumed he had his own reasons for ending it. Um, you know, with all the demons he's got, but he left no suicide note. And those who investigated the death, so there are people who were like he couldn't have, because apparently he had moved around after hurting himself Um, but those who investigated the death said the injury caused to him wouldn't have incapacitated him um, immediately and then he would have had time to walk around gather his thoughts gather his wares and um, do that but evidence suggests that he injured himself laid down on the couch covered himself up with a blanket and watched tv until he died his family did not collect the body um, for the sole reason, and this was their their reasoning. I don't know if it's actually the case or not. Um, I don't know how the Amish in general, or you know this factor of Amish, I don't know how they feel about suicide. Um, so I don't know, but they said that the media attention would come that would come with him would be unbearable. But right here is not where I would um, call the case closed because I wouldn't say it's over because what was Eli doing when his son was in like at a foster home? And there's a lot of people who think he was up to no good. After Eli's death, it was kind of released that there were two cold cases in Oklahoma that could be linked to him. And these cold cases align very much so with the time that Eli was left to his own devices with his son in a foster home. David M. Tyler, who was 36, was found deceased on November tenth, 1985. He was found in a truck bed outside of the Automatic Transmission Exchange, a business that he was a co-owner of. David was homosexual, participated in drug use, and also apparently received death threats from someone who hated homosexuals. It scared him enough to carry a handgun. Dennis Slater, 24, was found shot to death on December 5th, 1985, in the basement of Junction Creek Liquors, where he worked. Now, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that David and Dennis knew each other. They hung around the same crowds, they were both homosexual, they both used drugs, and there's evidence that they both attended the same party on November 8th, 1985, which was only two days before David was found dead. David Tyler knew Eli Stutzman. They were acquaintances, but they definitely knew each other. Was Eli at the party? Did he meet Dennis there? Were they in the same circles? The last time David Tyler was seen alive was on November 9th at a local Holiday Inn. Police found his vehicle still parked there after his body was found. According to police, there were persons of interest in the case, and DNA had been preserved, but no moves have been made in solving it. Dennis Slater was two weeks away from earning a degree in industrial psychology before he was killed. He had worked at the liquor store for about six months part time. Um, from what I read, he didn't really need the job for the money; he was just doing it for the experience. For a while, investigators thought that it was a drifter who killed Dennis. Um, that was like, like the person went to the liquor store with the intent to rob it and killed Dennis in the process. But now they aren't so sure. Fingerprints from Eli were requested, but the fingerprints of the scene were, for lack of a better term, illegible. DNA was requested several years ago, but I can't find an update for where that stands. It appears that the Durango Police Department may be the holdup in solving this case, either through proving it was Eli Stutzman or simply disproving it was him. Hopefully, someday, these two cold cases will be added to the solved list. Greg Olson who wrote the book Abandoned Prayers about Eli Stutzman and I got a lot of information from that book. I haven't read it but I have read snippets of it. It sounds like it's pretty good. if I ever get the time I would like to read it um, it was the in 2003 it was like on the New York Times bestsellers list um, but he believes that Eli had to kill Danny because he knew too much because um, through the timeline and just through logistics um, Greg Olson firmly believes that, Danny knew what happened to Glenn Pritchett and maybe that's why he went to a foster home that's my own opinion maybe after picking Danny up Danny asked about it and maybe Eli had hoped that he would forget and that he wouldn't bring it up again but he did Danny was nine years old he would have been smart enough to understand and kind of know what was going on and maybe that's why Eli decided that he needed to go or maybe the death of Danny was a tragic accident um I find it unlikely but unlikely doesn't mean impossible um That doesn't explain why Eli did what he did with with Danny's body. That doesn't explain a lot of the things about it, but, I mean, maybe it really was a tragic accident. I don't think so, but maybe it was. Uh, Maybe Eli Stutzman is just a guy who keeps finding himself at the wrong place at the wrong time. I don't find that likely, but it is a possibility. And unfortunately, whether these cases get solved or not, the families of the victims won't really receive full closure. Um, considering Eli decided his own fate back in two thousand and seven, but hopefully somewhere he's getting the karmic justice that he deserves and with that is episode sixty four and uh that's all I got that's all there is. so I will see you all next week It's gonna be November. How exciting November second, okay, getting our shit together, okay, well. <laughs> I'll catch you all next week and uh, follow my Instagram. Check out Twisted and Uncorked. Goodbye.